Good morning. Good to see you. I want to reintroduce you today to Peter Assad. <laughs> Welcome back to Heart of Life. And I'm going to let him explain that connection. He's got all the dates and everything. But, Peter, it's good <laughs> to have you back. Some of you might think the pastor's not here today because of the way LSU did not play yesterday. But that's not the He's just finishing up his vacation. So y'all pray hard for him because he did hear the score. And he wasn't feeling too good. So, uh, But, Peter, we're glad you're here, brother. Hey, and you're going to you. share God's word with us. We're going to be listening and let God... Speak through you. Amen. Right. Well, good morning. Uh, as Charles mentioned, my name is Peter Assad. I'm a friend of Pastor Jeff's, but also many of you here today. On September 22nd, 2013, which was nearly seven years ago today, Heart of Life started a Waldo campus. And over time, that campus grew to become its own church plant known as the church in Waldo, which I pastored today. And although our relationship as churches may have shifted some over the years, we've still been able to enjoy being able to partner together in many other ways. For example, just like you, our church has also been working through the Bible in a year in a series called Same Page. And just like you, this past week, yesterday, in fact, we finished reading the Gospel of John. And that's because for a while now, Pastor Jeff and I have been working together on our messages, bouncing our best ideas off one another, working with each other in this week-to-week -week kind of a united way. Take a look at these next few slides. We did a series called Blueprint together through 1 Timothy. Next slide, we looked at more through the book of Ephesians. We followed that up then week by week together through a series called Grace and Grit, looking at 2 Timothy. Until now, we are in a series called Same Page. We've already begun dreaming, if you're wondering what 2021 is going to look like, if we can even project that based on the year we've had, huh? But frankly, I've gotten the better end of this deal getting to work with such a master communicator as your pastor, Jeff. But I'll tell you, it's been fun continuing kingdom work together in this way. After all, we are on the same team, serving the same great God. This God who loves us so much that he came to earth as one of us. He was born a baby. He grew and worked and sweat along a path that would eventually lead to a bloody cross and a borrowed tomb. But spoiler alert, the grave is still empty. And now this God who loves us, who is for us and who has come for us, invites us to join him in a mission to see the world come to see that he loves them too. This is a cause worth giving our lives for because this is a, the only God who has given his life for us. And what I want to do this morning as a sort of devotional or meditation of sorts is to peer 
into the beauty of the face of this God that we have come to know and love by the name of Jesus Christ. And in all of the scriptures, I cannot think of a more wonderful story for us to spend our time looking at this morning than John chapter 8. Please turn there with me. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. We'll look there in a moment. If you've never heard this story before, my goodness, are you in for a treat? But if for the rest of us, you've heard it before, you know why it's a crowd favorite, right? It's beautiful, it's dramatic, it's poetic, it puts the stuck-up, arrogant people in their place and shows just who the real hero is. But my fear for many of us who know the story is I don't want our familiarity to keep us from truly hearing from God in this moment. Because God, I believe with all my heart, God wants to speak something specific to you. Today, in this moment, in this very second, he wants to say something to you. And so before we dive right in, I'm going to ask that we bow our heads, turn to the Lord, ask for his help in this time. God, two things I know that are true. You are here and you speak. And what else do we need? You're present here among us in a special way right now as we gather in your name as one people. So I pray this would give us comfort. For those who wonder where you are, may they sense your presence here this morning. And for those who have been trying to run from you, who hear your footsteps behind them and think you're out to punish them, Would you disarm their defenses and help them to realize that you're not trying to get back at them. You're trying to get them back, to bring them to you. And so speak to us, Lord. Speak to us by your spirit, into our spirits that our lives would be changed and our fears would be chased away by your perfect love. We pray all this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. John chapter 8, starting with verse 2. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. And all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. What do we see here? Well, right off the bat, we find out it's early in the morning. Some translations say daybreak. So we're talking something like 6 a.m., depending on the season. But no matter what time it was, we see that if Jesus was teaching... When the word of God would speak, people came ready to listen. And I have to ask, do we hunger for God to speak to us in the same way that they did? Do you hunger for God to speak to you like this? I went walking around the neighborhood the other day, door-to-door stuff. Uh, No, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, but I believe in Jesus And I want to give witness to what he's done in my life. And so I go door to door and I'm asking this question. If God could do one thing in your life right now, anything, what would it be? And then I would take some time to pray with that individual 
that God would meet them right where they are. And so I heard a number of answers over that time. Some asked for better health. Some asked for protection. Some asked for a better job or whatever it might be, things like that. But one person, I'll never forget, when I asked them what God could do in their life, she responded with these words in a broken heart. She said, I just want God to speak to me. And it got me thinking, if God spoke into my life right now, what would he even say? What would he sound like? Would I recognize his voice and how would I respond? Have you ever wanted God to speak to you? You know, if you could hear from God right now, what would you hope that he would say? Would he be joyful or would he be angry? Would he be frustrated or welcoming? If you were face to face with God in this moment, what would the conversation look like? Our text tells us they all came eager to hear Jesus speak no matter the time. Are we hungry for Jesus to speak to us today, to the very depths of our soul? Does your heart ache for Jesus to change your whole life with a single word? Well, look now, because breaking into this scene of such a crowd of people longing to hear from Jesus, we're about to see something, something more beautiful than any of the words that Jesus spoke to them. We're about to see the glory and the beauty and the love of Jesus displayed in a paradigm-shifting, life-altering way. Listen closely and let's hear verse 3. Hear from Jesus. Verse 3 says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I really want us to get into the scene together. Imagine that right now, in the middle of our service, imagine those doors flinging wide open. And a mob of pastors and church leaders and staff start dragging what appears to be a prostitute behind them. She's naked, not even half-dressed, because they grabbed her in the middle of a job, and she's frantically clinging to this piece of trash that she grabbed on the way to cover herself with, just trying whatever she can to cover up the immense shame that she is feeling, and then throwing her down on the stage here, they all shout, look at the filth we just found outside. And they continue to speak, verse five. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say, Jesus? Are you picturing this? The woman begins to wipe this endless stream of just tears from her face. And as you peer into the scene closer, you realize this is not a prostitute at all. This isn't some random face in the crowd. No, it's actually someone you know. 
It's one of our own church members. Someone from this very campus, maybe in your youth group, maybe in your life team, someone you love and care deeply for, caught in this act and now being publicly shamed in such a horrendous way. I know this is incredibly uncomfortable to imagine. I mean, really, how would we respond if this was happening even in this very moment? But please try to picture it and feel the pain and the anger and the confusion because this gives us a better grasp of what the tension of this story would have been like for them. And then the audacity. Beyond this already unbelievably heinous display, we find out in verse 6 that the leaders did this to test Jesus so they might have some charge to bring against him. We find out this whole ordeal, everything, the whole thing was just their attempt to try and trap Jesus. They wanted to make an object lesson out of her, objectifying her, dehumanizing. Do you feel the weight of this moment? Let's step out of the scene for a moment and try to consider what the trap they were trying to set up for Jesus was like. See, they know that Jesus is highly popular among the people. He's come with this message of forgiveness and love and hope and healing that the people all seem to be eating up. And so many are beginning to think this might be the Messiah. He might be the chosen one, the Son of God, the Christ who would come to deliver the people. So the religious leaders set up a trap to try and and expose Jesus for the fraud they think that he is. This woman is guilty of adultery, that seems clear. But they're asking him now how they should respond. Because the law says to stone the one caught in adultery. And if Jesus says, yeah, stone her, well, then it's going to disillusion all the people who are going to be like, hey, wait a second, where's all the talk of forgiveness and love? And that Jesus, you were preaching about before, so that's the one side. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, no, don't stone her, well, then the religious elite could be like, hey, see, Jesus can't be God like he's claiming to be because he's not upholding God's law. So either way, they think they've got him pegged. That's the trap. So there with everyone watching, some through eyes of compassion, others through confusion and others contempt, in the middle of the scene, what does Jesus do? First, second half of verse 6, take a look at this. It says, Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. Not quite the response I was expecting. How about you? (laughs) Right? But perhaps there's something more at play that we're missing. Commentaries offer differing views on what Jesus may have been doing here. And here are three commentaries that I believe each tell us a part of the story. First, 
In rabbinic culture, the rabbi would at times grab a stick and they would write in the dirt. That's a teacher as they were teaching the people around him. Kind of like a teacher writes on a chalkboard or a smart board if your school's well funded. <laughs> but as we read in the passage, we know that they're standing in the temple. Meaning there was no dirt to write in. Only stone and tile. And remember, Jesus doesn't grab a stick. It says he writes with his finger. So while I agree, Jesus is setting himself up as the teacher, I believe he's also saying something more. Because after all, Jesus, using his finger to write on stone, does that image remind you of anything? Take a look at Exodus chapter 31. This is the second thought. Exodus 31.18 tells us when God had finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, God gave him the two tablets of the testimony. That's the Ten Commandments. On what does it say? On tablets of stone written with the finger of God. On tablets of stone written with the finger of God. In Exodus, when God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, he writes them on stone with his finger. I believe Jesus is referencing that moment. Jesus writing on the ground with his finger makes a bigger statement than I ever realized. Not only is he the teacher, but he is also God the originator of the law, and the only true interpreter of it. And then there's a third thing that I believe Jesus is communicating here. He's about to call out the religious leader's blindness to the truth. So this is the third thing, but I'll say it this way. Have you ever been in an argument with someone, and they're saying something so irrational, so nonsensical, you don't even bother to respond? If you've been on Facebook anytime soon, you know what I'm talking about. Jesus scribbling on the ground is his subtle way of communicating his indifference to the accusations of the religious elite. He's saying your argument holds no water. Why? Well, think about it. Yes, they're right that the law of Moses in Leviticus says that those caught in adultery, caught, right, caught in adultery, should be stoned. However, Jesus sees the fallacy of the statement. Because if she was caught in adultery, then there's one question that remains. Where's the guy that she was caught with? Right? If she's caught in the act of adultery, it takes two to tango, right? So where's the dude? This is what we find out. See, they come barging in and, and saying the law commands that we, we stone such a woman and Jesus brilliantly communicates, okay, then, where's the man? This is what we see in verse seven. Look at this. And as they continue to ask him, I just imagine him scribbling on the ground and they're like, come on, teacher, speak. Come on, Jesus, speak. Come on. And then Jesus just gets up and he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bends down on the ground and starts to write. <laughs> I think he's saying, where's the man? Which one of you in this group wasn't the one caught with this woman? Let him who is without sin be the one that first cast the stone. Jesus is brilliant. 
This is why their argument holds no water. They came to trap him, but the trap gets, only has power if they're all in cahoots. And they won't go against one of their own. So long as they're all in the conspiracy together, they'll be fine. But if any one of them listens to Jesus here and throws a stone to say, hey, I'm not the man who was caught in adultery. I'm not the man who was caught in this sin with this woman. What it's going to do is it's going to eventually point out the man who was, who's likely standing there in the midst with them, piously, self-righteously standing there in judgment. (laughs) They came to trap Jesus, and Jesus turns the trap back around on them. Verse 9 tells us when they heard it, they went away one by one until just Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stands up and says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus closes with this statement, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. I've titled this sermon, Jesus is Left Empty-Handed. Because of everyone who was standing there, whether spectator or accuser, the only one left is Jesus. And here we see the sinless one is left, but... He holds no stone of condemnation in his hand. Jesus is left empty-handed. And though the church is called the body of Christ, meaning as followers of Jesus, we take our cues from Christ our head, just like our human body listens to the impulse and signals sent from our brain to our bodies. But too often, if I'm honest... The church does not resemble Jesus. Too often it seems the church is the one toting itself around with stones of condemnation in his hands. Jesus is left empty-handed, but can the same be said about the church? Jesus is left empty-handed. Are we Some of you know what I'm talking about firsthand. Your particular sins, when brought into the light, were not met with open arms, but with clenched fists and heavy stones. Many times from so-called Christians. When the church pickets a funeral, making a public spectacle of an individual's sexual orientation, I'm telling you, that sounds a lot more like the Pharisees in our story than Jesus. When the church turns a blind eye toward the sins of gluttony and greed and pride, but no, 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 we must be faithful to God's word regarding homosexuality and abortion, I think we sound a lot more like the Pharisees than Jesus. I'm not saying live and let live. I'm not saying sin and let sin. What I am saying is stop condemning those that Jesus does not condemn. 
stop throwing stones when Jesus never picks one up. Stop holding on to what Jesus has already let go. Let's not be like the Pharisees who make an object lesson out of someone and strip them of their value and dignity before God. Instead, let's be like Jesus who doesn't let their actions define them but redefines their worth as someone made in the image and likeness of God. How would Jesus respond to a pregnant teenage girl? How would Jesus respond to an individual who feels like they've been born in the wrong body? How does Jesus respond to you, whoever you are, in whatever you've been, in your own pit of personal shame? How does Jesus respond to you? To each of us, to me and to you, I believe he would respond the very same way that he responded to this woman caught in adultery. He'd start by scattering the accusers, right? Till it's just the two of you. No other voices necessary. No other voices matter here. It's just noise. And then when it's just you and Jesus, here's what he would say. I do not condemn you. I do not condemn you. Can we let those words break the chains in our life? Can we really heed them and listen and let them ring out like an anthem, a freedom song? Jesus does not condemn me. Jesus does not condemn you. Yes, he follows it up with the statement of go and leave your life of sin, but you've got to see the order, right? It starts by recognizing there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ. And then out of his love, he says, come, let's get out of this thing that is destroying you and that is destroying the people around you. Jesus does not condemn you. Jesus doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care what's been done for you. Jesus only cares for you. And then the order, right? Jesus doesn't say, stop sinning, then I won't condemn you. A lot of us live in that way, don't we? I gotta stop sinning, then I can come to Jesus. No, he says, I don't condemn you, period. Then, leave your life of sin. The order is crucial. We cannot reverse it because obedience is not a requirement for God's acceptance. Instead, obedience is our response to such an acceptance. Some of us here, some of you hearing my voice right now have been hiding for so long, hoping to never be caught. Maybe you've been trying to fix yourself before you can come back to Jesus. But listen, Jesus doesn't require us to get ourselves right first before coming to him. No, Jesus hasn't come to condemn. John 3, 17, 
He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. He comes to invite us in first, to speak his love and his grace over us. And then, once we've experienced his acceptance, when he's lifted the burden of condemnation off our shoulders, then he invites us out of the life of sin we've been in, into a new, a better a fuller life, freed from the chains that once held us down. I do not condemn you. Now, leave your life of sin. But we often reverse the order, don't we? Especially with others. We have a habit of exposing and exploiting sexual sin just like they did. There is a double standard. We demand justice against the sins others commit, but seek mercy and grace for our own. But what would it look like to respond with the same sort of grace and understanding we give ourselves for the sins that plague us? Better yet, with the boundless grace of Christ himself that he extends. Listen to Romans 8. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's why Romans 8.1 can declare, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Yes, amen, right? Like Jesus could say to this woman, my sister, I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. Yes, stones will be thrown, but they'll hit me, Jesus says. Spears will be launched, but they'll go into my side. Thorns will be brought down, but they will go into my head. Come, sister, you're free. See, Jesus was accursed so we could be free. Jesus bore our sins so we could wear his righteousness. Jesus stood condemned so we could stand forgiven. At the cross of Christ, a world of sin is absorbed by the love of God and recycled into grace and mercy. I do not condemn you. Now, leave your life of sin. See, Jesus is left empty-handed because he knows every stone was already thrown on him. If there's one thought I could leave you with, it's this. The most life-changing event that took place for this woman was getting caught in her sin. I'll say that again because we need to hear this. The most life-changing event that took place for this individual was being caught in her sin. Because without getting caught in her sin she never would have encountered her Savior. We often try to avoid getting caught at all costs, as if that would be the very worst result possible for us. But for her, getting caught in her sin actually ushered her into the presence of Jesus, and it's here in Christ's presence that we find salvation. 
redemption. It's here that we find peace and love and new life, but it means bringing your sin to light and choosing to surrender your life to the Lord because it's here in the light of Christ alone that we can be made white as snow. I did a wedding for a couple friends a few years back. And as is tradition, the bride wears white as a sign of purity, as a sign of saying, hey, I waited for my husband. But the truth is, in this case, they hadn't. They had both struggled with sexual sin individually and together. And so the bride's question then became, how can I possibly wear a white dress or even walk down a white aisle runner with a clear conscience. Yes, Jesus redeemed me. Yes, he made me new. But, and maybe you can imagine where they were at. So they did something incredible. They redefined white. White no longer had to stand for purity. What if white could stand for surrender, like the white flag? Because when they surrendered their lives to Jesus, it's Jesus who makes them pure, not their record, not their hidden sin, but Jesus makes them pure. Purity now was the gracious byproduct of a life of surrender to Jesus. And so when the day of the wedding came, they started off covered in a heavy, dark cloak. And they walked together to a cross and knelt down before it, symbolizing their surrender to Jesus. And I'll never forget it. And then the white runner came out. And then the dark cloak was removed. And they walked down the aisle of surrender together, arrayed in white. That day they stood confident, not because of who they were, but because of who their Jesus is. That day they stood pure, clothed in white because of what Jesus had accomplished on their behalf. And if I could just say one thing to you this morning is that I know some of you have been running. You've been running from your past. You've been running from mistakes that you've made. You've been running from things that you've done and things that have been done to you and you've been covering them up. Can't let anyone see them. Can't let anyone know. God would never accept me. No one will ever, ever hold me in and they hold me in. And some of you, what if I told you right here, right now? What if I told you right now that you could hear from Jesus? what I want you to do is listen closely because he is still speaking these words to you. I do not condemn you. Now, leave your life of sin. Pray with me. God, a picture is worth a thousand words. And if Jesus 
is the clearest look that any of us can get at knowing who you are, then I beg you, please, 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 God, would you sear the image of Jesus left empty-handed into our hearts? Would you burn it into our minds, God? Imprint it so deeply into our lives that we would be shaped by it, that we would be changed by it, that we would be transformed by such a powerful, life-altering statement of who you are, that no trace of fear would remain in our hearts, that we would know your heart because we've seen and heard from Jesus loud and clear. Jesus is left empty-handed, holding on to nothing but love, and it's a love that drives out all fear. And so even now in this time, Lord, would you work this truth into our hearts that each of us would respond to this image of Jesus left empty-handed and see that he took the stones for us, see that he took the cross for us, and see that what he has left for us is a life of resurrection hope. May we respond in faith this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray all things. Amen. I'll be down here at the side. If you'd like some prayer, I would love nothing more than to share in that time with you that we would leave together knowing Jesus is left empty-handed and our sin does not have the final say. Jesus is stronger.